you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church during this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church available to those in first through third grade. The rest of us are turning to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. Thank you for uh, your prayers as uh, this past week I was traveling uh, to speak at a camp in Southern California, Camp Ironwood. I was able to take uh, Becky and Kostler with me as we were in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And when I say desert, I mean desert. There was not grass anywhere. It was all sand. Uh, They had a very cool week. They had a cold front come through. So the high each day was only 98 degrees. Normally it's between 110 and 112 this time of year during the heat of the day. And so we had a wonderful, uh, had a chance to preach to uh, many teens in in the desert there. And we saw uh, several come to Christ and many get a... um, and understanding to a greater extent of what God requires of them in their Christian life. And so thank you so much for, uh, for your prayers. I will say this, and actually told, I had a, a meeting with the staff and the counselors there, and actually told them this. I enjoy preaching other places, but I love preaching here. And uh, about Thursday morning, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I like camp. I'm glad we're here, but I'm ready to go home. And, uh, and I, I love our church family. The greatest joy in my life is ministering to you. And uh, God's given us such a great love for each other, and I'm thankful to be with you this morning. With that in mind, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're actually going to be referencing verses 3 all the way down through verse 16. My goal isn't to exposit all of those verses, but rather to look at a command that God gives Timothy and to do a survey of these verses and to ask the question, what can we learn about biblical manhood and biblical masculinity from the verses that Paul gives us in speaking to a young leader in the church. Over the past 10 years or so, there's been a recent rise in men standing up in our culture to teach the next generation about true, what they would refer to as true masculinity or true manhood. There's been a rise in teaching today of something called Stoicism. Stoicism began or was made famous, depending on who you read, by Epicurus back uh, many, 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 many years ago uh, with the Greeks. And there's actually statistics will tell you today there are more Stoics uh, alive today than there were even during the time of uh, Epicurus, Epictetus. Stoicism is misunderstood in that many people think Stoics are those who have no emotions and are unfazed by all things around them, but rather, we're not going to get into Stoicism this morning, but Stoicism teaches self-control. It teaches self-restraint. It teaches a control of the emotions and thus is actually, uh, share, it actually shares a lot of parallels with biblical Christianity. In the book of Titus, Paul tells Titus to teach the young men in the church, first of all, self-control. And so the teachings of of the Stoics have found a rise in today's culture, believe it or not. Some of you may recognize some men who would side with Stoicism or would have traits that would push Stoicism. Names like Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Bedros Kajulian. Some of you are like, I have no idea who these people are. And others of you say, I know exactly who those people are. 
Men like this have risen in our society over the past decade as a foil to the demasculinization of men. Men like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and Bedros Kajulian and many others who are like them tout self-control, proper self-image, working hard, providing for your family, not going into foolish debt, long-term or even lifetime devotion to one woman in marriage, and many other moral teachings that would actually reflect biblical teachings. I heard Bedros Kajulian in a podcast. By the way, I'm not recommending these men as your life coaches. I'm just referencing them as an example. But I heard him in one of his podcast reference, he said the number one way to set yourself up to be successful as a young man is to get married early and learn to dedicate yourself to your wife. It's pretty good. Joe Rogan right now has 15 million subscribers on YouTube. Jordan Peterson, 7 million. Bedros Kajulian, 600,000. And quickly growing. The highest demographic of the followers of these men, up to 80% of the followers of these three men are young men from the ages of 16 to 25. Why? Because over the past 25 plus years, our culture has been slowly demasculinizing men, removing biblical manhood from the equation, but there's something in the heart of every young man that cries out for the truth of righteous manhood. And I believe I'm actually doing a, in the process of doing a biblical critique of modern stoicism, and when I'm done with that, I'll share it with you. Some of you won't read it. I'm sure some of you will find it fascinating. Others of you will fall asleep probably in the first three pages. But I believe one of the reasons that this has been drawing the hearts of young men today like it has been is because there are so many aspects of it that would parallel Scripture. It's not, the movement is not biblical, and I want to be clear about that, but there are so many aspects of it that align with truths from Scripture, and so the image of God, the conscience that is on every person, the image of God that's written on the heart, the law of God that's written on the heart of every man, the image of God in which we are created, there is something something in your heart that resonates with that. There's a reason Why when we do our kindergarten graduation and we announce what these young five-year-olds aspire to be when they grow up, many of them say things like policemen and firemen, soldiers. Because it's God's plan that a man who reflects the heart of Christ would lead by being a protector and a provider. There's a lot to that. But that's God's plan. And there's something that's in the heart, written on the heart of every young man that aspires to be like that. Young men today are looking for examples of genuine masculinity and leadership. And sadly, many young men have decided to look outside of the church for that because there's a dearth in our church of men who would exemplify these qualities. When we look at the culture around us, we see examples of the unsaved trying to reclaim the idea of masculinity and manhood and attempting to pass these ideas on to the next generation. Not all of these influences are bad. 
Jordan Peterson, who I believe God is drawing to himself, I don't know that he's a genuine believer, has some incredible truths about God that he can share. He's an amazing philosopher. Joe Rogan is a very curious guy. He's, he's, not, he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. I don't recommend you listening to him. He's laced with profanity. But young men are attracted to him because he's a, he, he stands out as a, as a leader, as a protector and a provider in a worldly sense. Bedros Kajulian was in prison for many years, and when he got out, he got his life together. He's a life coach now and is actually the mastermind between, uh, behind many of the prominent brands in our culture today. Not all of these influences are bad. I would recommend that you not pattern your life after these men. But they have some interesting things to say, and they have some good thoughts on leadership. And there's been left a vacuum in our church, and our churches in general. I shouldn't say our church. I don't want you to ever think that I'm talking bad or talking down about our church, because God has given some amazing men And I'll talk about the motivation behind this sermon in a minute. But in the Christian scene in general, in the church as a whole, there has been a feminization of men. Leadership. So my premise this morning is that rather than looking to the world around us to define what manhood and masculinity should look like, we need to look at the scriptures to define for us what biblical manhood and biblical masculinity looks like. And it might not be what you think. What's my motivation? My motivation for the sermon. If you know my pattern, very rarely do I break from a series. I love going verse by verse through scripture. But having been involved in this study over the past couple months on what's happening with men in America today and the forces that are pulling their hearts away, I really felt the Lord compelling me to bring you this message this morning. First of all, to motivate the men as who are part of Community Baptist Church to pattern their lives after the Lord Jesus Christ and to find their identity as a man according to Scripture. Secondly, so that the ladies in our congregation can be in prayer for the men of our congregation, that wives would know how best to pray for their husbands, how best to encourage their husbands in this way. That parents would encourage their children, that grandparents would encourage the young sons in their home and raise them according to biblical standards of masculinity and manhood. And that those single ladies in our congregation, no matter your age, if God would ever allow you to be married, marriage is not the ultimate or the end all, and it's not God's plan for everybody. But if God would bring a man into your life, that you would have some sort of litmus test to say, does this man align up with what God requires him to be? And if not... Maybe he needs a little bit more time. Maybe he needs to wait a little bit longer to grow up because we've extended adolescence, sadly, in our culture. Or that the young lady's heart would, or the older lady's heart would resonate with the godly man that God brings into her life and she would see what God requires. 
We are not going to give an exhaustive look at this this morning. But I think it's important for us to remember that if you would like a resource on this, Wayne Grudem and John Piper did a, an incredible resource book called Recovering Biblical Masculinity and Femininity. And um, I think their definition of biblical masculinity is probably the best that I've seen. And I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it has something to do with the effect of a, a biblical man is someone who, and they support it with many scripture references, we're going to see some this morning, who lead, provide, and protect the women in their life to various degrees based on their various levels of relationship. In other words, just if you're not married or if you're in a situation where you're deployed on an oil rig for six months or you're deployed you know, to, to, a, to a war zone where you're not around women, that that doesn't let you off the hook that this is a, a sense of leadership providing and protection for the women in your life in regards to their various relationships. And what we're going to do is we're going to look specifically at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to look at Paul's um, command and his, his heart, his desire for the men who would be leading the church. And I think that best serves our context this morning. Because I believe that every man should aspire to the qualifications of deacon or elder. And that there is no reason why there should be an adult man in the congregation who is a mature Christian who is not qualified and willing to serve the church in some way. Paul explains this to Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a charge that he gives Timothy that's not a charge just aimed at those who are on staff at a church. It is not just aimed at those who would call themselves pastors or hold the office of pastor or deacon. It is not just meant for those who would be lay pastors who aren't on staff but would still serve as pastors or those who are deacons. If it were, Paul would use the term that he does often in Timothy for Timothy and Titus, elder, presbyteros, bishop, deacon, but he doesn't. Look at verse 11. He says, but for you, O man of God. And brothers in Christ, that is meant for you this morning. If you are a Christian, that is meant for those who are currently, are aspiring to, or will eventually be leaders in the church. And so this message applies broadly this morning. Our text begins in verse 11, but Paul give, he begins with a contrast in the first part of the chapter between those who lead the church with false teaching, with false manhood, with false masculinity, with ungodly living, and those, beginning in verse 11, who would stand as an example to whom we should lift up in the church as those who reflect the heart and mind of Jesus Christ. And so let's begin reading in verse 11, where we down through verse 16. Paul exhorts Timothy, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, as we just sang, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Heavenly Fathers, we look into these verses of Scripture this morning as we look at an overview of this chapter. May we pull out principles that will encourage our church this morning. May you give us a heart to raise up men of God that would act as the backbone of this congregation. May you raise up young men who are willing to operate their lives with a distinct otherness from this world, who are willing to lay aside the things of youth at a young age, who would flee youthful passions and lusts and embrace the truth of what it means to reflect the heart of Christ. May you raise up men in our church who are to be mentors of the next generation, to pass on what what we've learned from Scripture and thus pass the promise of the Gospel to the next generation and see you raise up Men of God, in this congregation, in your name we pray, amen. I've entitled my message, Four Qualities of Faithful Men. Four Qualities of Faithful Men. These are qualities that would characterize a man who would be considered, according to verse 11, a man who is characterized as being of God, a man who, who reflects God accurately to others because that is our goal. But as for you, O oh man of God, four qualities, I've alliterated them for you this morning so you can easily take notes and maybe even remember them as you can press them deep into your heart. We're going to see Four key words, four qualities that exemplify someone who would be considered a man of God. A man of God must flee, follow, fight, and focus. Flee, follow, fight, and focus. If you know me, I'm not big into alliteration every Sunday like that, but I think in this case, those four words accurately represent what Paul is the big picture of what Paul is pushing Timothy towards and an accurate picture of how we should represent God in this world. Quality number one, flee sin and temptation. Flee sin and temptation. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul loves to give lists. The fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. 
He gives these lists in order to exemplify what a heart looks like that is immersed in Scripture and has embraced the Gospel and let the Gospel change him. He does not give these lists as in a sense of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, but rather if you are giving yourself to God, you will see these qualities exemplified in your life. And so when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, we have a question that's asked, that we need to ask, what are these things? What is it that a man, a young man, in Timothy's case, a man of God is supposed to flee from? And I'm sure that if you were to ask the older men in our congregation and say, what should young men get out of their life? You would hear a variety of suggestions And we won't go into that. I thought about going into that, but we won't. Instead, we'll look specifically at non-negotiables. Through the inspired word of God, I'll give you one. My father-in-law hated flip-flops. Whenever I wore flip-flops, he called me a sissy. I'd show up on vacation, we'd go to the beach, or we'd show up at the pool or whatever, and I'd come out in flip-flops, and he would just roll his eyes. He hated flip-flops, right? And so if you were to ask him, some of you were like, yeah, go get some shoes on, boy, you know, or whatever. But um, if we were to ask, we'd get a variety of opinions. But what I'd like to do is to look at the beginning of chapter 6 and look at non-negotiables. These are not opinions. This is truth revealed from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul. First of all, we see in verses 3 and 4 that men are to flee false doctrine. There should be no room for doctrinal error in a godly man's life. The godly man needs to be intimately familiar with what Paul refers to as sound doctrine or the clear gospel teaching. We heard that explained in Sunday school with uh, Pastor Brent doing such an incredible job warning and raising kids of teaching something other than what the true gospel is. And here there is no room in a godly man's life for false doctrine. They need to have the ability to recognize false doctrine. Look at verse 3 and 4. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that's what we give ourselves to. Giving ourselves to the teachings of Christ. There should be no tolerance for things in his life or in his family's life that would encourage or promote teachings that would go against Scripture. I believe that the Father should be the gatekeeper of what comes into the home. There should be nothing that you knowingly expose your family to that you do not first understand what's happening. Because you are responsible as the head of the home, even as Christ is the head of the church. You need to know the influences that are coming into your life and into your home, and you need to know whether or not they are bringing in truth or bringing in error. You need to know the fronts on which your children are exposed. Dads, never give your child any sort of of, of phone or iPad that has unfiltered access to the internet. Never should you do that. It's foolish. And if you do, you need to go home and before lunch, 
You need to lock it down. Imagine you being 12 years old, going through puberty, and your dad giving you access to answer any question that you have with the click of a button, and it seems like no one would ever know. It's spiritual suicide for your family. Don't do it. And if you've made the mistake and didn't know better, fix it. Flee any influence that would bring in dangers into your home. Flee a craving for controversy, verses 4 and 5. What happens when this ungodliness dominates your life? You get puffed up with conceit and understanding truly nothing. He's an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion. Men like to argue. You ever notice that? My mom used to tell us all the time, son, you could argue with a brick wall. And I would always say, no, I couldn't. Some of you will get that later. Men often enjoy debate Argumentation. Don't crave controversy. If, if someone is speaking against the truth, don't be afraid to stand up, as we'll see in a minute. Fight the good fight of faith, but don't crave controversy. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That means you go as far as you can to live in peace. As much as lies within you, the King James says. As far as you can, live in peace. Agree as far as you can go. Lay aside your differences and preferences and agree as far as you can. Sometimes this may mean taking a stand for truth and combating those that are against sound doctrine, but this should never be just for the purpose of having an argument. Never confuse a protest for a question, right? Find common ground as much as possible. Notice in verse 4 the root of this controversy. The person is puffed up with conceit and truly understands nothing. Why do, you know, when when a guy goes to Bible college and really starts to understand and get excited about theology, there's something that we refer to called the cage stage. And the cage stage is when you want to lock them in a cage for the first five years so they'll stop arguing with people because they know just enough to be dangerous and not enough to shut up, right? And that's, I'm sorry, that was, that was a little bit strong. Um, but, but they have this craving to argue every fine point of everything. Most arguments we get into have nothing to do with right versus wrong, but have everything to do with opinions. Notice the phrasing, an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarreling about words. What is this quarreling about words? It's mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.14 and Acts 18.15, referencing the theological nuances and convictional preferences of life. There's a reason why our membership covenant, our membership pledge that we take every time says that I am willing to lay aside my personal preferences and desires in this body 
in order to worship around the unity of the gospel. So we can live peaceably with all men. Yes, you should have opinions. But that doesn't mean that I need to know them, right? Sound doctrine produces unity and joy. Arguments over preferences produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. There are three levels of Christian beliefs. The bottom level, we call them, you call these the three shelves of theology. You'll hear me reference them in either first, second, or third level. Maybe you'll hear me say bottom shelf, middle shelf, top shelf. But really, there are three levels of theology. Why only three? Because human beings think in threes a lot of times. So we just put them up into three categories, okay? The bottom shelf would be the purity of the gospel. The Apostles' Creed. Jesus, truly man, truly God. The substitutionary atonement that Jesus died to take your place on the cross. Uh, that, so that you don't have to, that he bore your sin so that you can be brought near by the blood of Christ. The bodily resurrection of Christ from the tomb, that Jesus is coming back, the foundational truths of Christianity that are worth arguing over. And then there's second tier. The, the bottom level, the bottom shelf, would be whether or not you're a Christian. The second level would be what type of church you go to. That would be things like baptism, different views on the Lord's Supper, you know, um, th- things of that nature, the, the serious nature of church membership. Whether or not you believe the church should be uh, in, in a hierarchical government like a Presbyterian nature or whether we should be self-governing like the Baptists and, or one of those things. Those are second level issues. They're not worth debating over because there's good, godly men who land on both sides. So we don't argue over those things. You're here and so we can talk about the second shelf in- issues and explain the convictions that we share But I'm dear friends with men who differ on second shelf issues. And that's okay, because we can agree to be different. And then there's top shelf issues, third shelf issues, like eschatology. Like what's going to happen in the end times that none of us really know, but we all have an opinion, and they're not worth arguing over. And we can even have differences within this church. Issues like women's head coverings and things of that nature, where you may have a strong opinion, but there are good godly people who disagree even within the context of the congregation here. Opinions like dating versus courting. Or I've even heard of dorting. What in the world is that? I have no idea. But go home and talk about it and figure it out in your family and don't push your preferences on someone else. You know? Everything's going to be okay. And so these three levels, and friends, we don't, we don't argue about the second level and the third level. If you want to know why we baptize by immersion after a, a, a confession of faith and after fruit that's revealed in the life, I will give you biblical reasons because I'm very convinced about that because in order to be a part of this church, we have to agree on that issue. And church governance and all of those, those issues that are second level, but we're not going to argue with good Christians who disagree with us. And so don't have a craving for controversy. Thirdly, flee the, mon- the love of money. Verses 6 through 10. There is a righteous desire given to each man to provide for his family. Men are workers and need to be workers because when they don't work, we get into trouble. There's a righteous desire given to be a provider but we can go too far 
And all of our decisions are now being made because of money. For many of you, the one main driving desire you may have is to provide for your family the things that you were never able to have as a child. Well, my dad and mom couldn't afford, so I'm going to make sure that I can. When really, all your kids want is is you at home. Our responsibility, according to verse 6, is to find a godliness and a contentment. A contentedness. With clothing and food, let us therewith be content. Verse 7 reminds us that there are no U-Hauls at a funeral. You came in with nothing, you're going to leave with nothing. I read a book recently that uh, someone in our church wrote called Finish Line, and uh, it's an encouragement to not have your kids throw away all your junk. Throw away all your stuff. Get rid of all your stuff, friend, before, before you force someone else to do that. You can't take anything with you. It's not money that's wrong. Let's be clear. It's not money and and things that are wrong. God's given us all things freely to enjoy. There's nothing sinful about being wealthy. Job was the wealthiest man in the world at the time. And afterwards, God replaced it with twice as much. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Money is not the issue. It's the love of money that is the problem. The love of money doesn't even mean that you have money. It means that your heart and your desire is driven by obtaining that. If your pursuit in this life is to follow money, you will fall into temptation. This pursuit of wealth plunges people into ruin and destruction. And this doesn't mean just the desire to accumulate wealth. This is referring to the motivation behind your life. And maybe you need to ask yourself a question. Is money my primary motivation for making this decision? And if so, you need to be really careful. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be a consideration. That's stewardship. The love of money will destroy you. And if it's your primary motivation, you need to be very, very careful. What is a healthy and and, uh, biblical mindset of money? I preached a message on stewardship, time, resources, finances, It's on our website. You can go back and listen to that. I won't re-preach the entire thing, but we came to the conclusion based on Scripture that a proper view of money is to recognize that we are simply a, 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 a culvert, you could say a pipe, a pipeline, for God to get resources to kingdom endeavors. That's that's how we should operate. That doesn't mean that you don't need to take care of your family. Your family is a kingdom endeavor. But that's how we view money. That money is a tool to accomplish kingdom efforts because God's going to get his resources one way or the other because they all belong to him anyway, right? How many many people have been so wealthy and they've lost it in an instant? In an instant. Rather than losing it, may we give it or, or direct it, one of the ways being through giving, but may we direct it to kingdom efforts to godly efforts, both in our family and in our, in our own lives. And as a, your primary outlet of giving and supporting kingdom efforts should be through your local church. Why? Because you get to decide how we use it. We published a budget two weeks ago. It's been on the South Welcome Center. We'll vote on it tonight. Every dollar in that budget that comes in 
through Community Baptist Church is given by you and you get to say where it goes. And so we've been meeting for the past several months to prayerfully consider how we can recommend to the church it should go. But this is the only place that you can give to that you can sit down and you can have a voice and say, this is where I believe our money should, should go. What, what do we think? So we produce a financial report and statement every month to ensure accountability with that. You are a channel for God's resources to be diverted into kingdom opportunities and efforts. So let me ask you a question. Are you an example of one who sacrifices time and resources for the kingdom of God? Or are you setting an example of someone who's consumed with getting more? If your kids only knew about money from what they learned from you, or your grandkids only knew about money from what they see in your life and what they learn from your teaching, how would they view money? Do you live to get or live to give? As Paul references all of these wrong thought processes and life motivations, he tells the man of God to flee these things. However, whenever you run, you're always running somewhere. You can't flee on a treadmill, right? And so with fleeing these things, there's another side as well, and it's to pursue. And so quality number one is to flee sin and temptation. Quality number two is to follow after Christ. You pursue Christ. As you're running away from sin, you have to run somewhere. When you remove sin from your life, there's a vacuum that's created that something will fill. And so flee temptation, but follow after Christ. Pursue, verse 11, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. As you're fleeing sin in your life, run after these things. Righteousness, that's making righteous actions and conduct with other, among others. It's doing what's right. This isn't the righteousness that God provides through salvation that's imputed to our account. This is simply doing what is right. It's making the right decision. It's doing right. Are you known as a person who does right? Very rarely is this decision the easy decision. Rarely, rarely is it the popular decision because doing right will cost you, but the cost is worth it. Listening to Ron Hamilton songs and Patch the Pirate tapes as a kid, I can still hear the song, Do Right Till the Stars Fall. Do Right Till the Last Call. I remember singing this at the top of my lungs as a little kid. Do right when there's no one else to stand by you. Do right when you're all alone. Do right though it's never known. Do right because you love the Lord. Do right. That's what this word righteousness means. It means just to do the right thing. Secondly, godliness. It's not enough to be good. You need to be godly. It's not enough to be a person who just does good things. You need to do godly things. This means a life that accurately represents the character of God and the mission of what God is doing in this world. It means you reflect Jesus' action and you obey God's command for what he is doing. This means that the life 
of the man of God reflects the mission of God in this world to make disciples of all nations. Why will Pastor Brent be at Panera every Thursday morning? Because he loves women's food? No. You get a salad and you look at it and you say, I'm sorry, I think you've given me the food that my food eats, right? No, that's not why. Oh, it may be why. Is that why? No, that's not why, if you know Brent. Why will he be at Panera? Because he wants to encourage godly relationships among the men in our church. That's called discipling. It's called encouraging people towards Christ. Nothing fancy is going to go on. Prayer, Bible reading, maybe picking up a book to read together. I encourage you, go, be there. Pack the house out so no one else can get in Panera and everyone else is frustrated because we're there supporting, I mean, buy something. Don't make the manager frustrated, but, but go there and, 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 and be focused on encouraging people to live for God. How awesome would it be if we had to split up in two and three different locations because we had too many men who wanted to get together one morning a week this summer to encourage each other to live for God. That is obeying the command to make disciples of all nations. That we get together and we encourage and we foster true, genuine relationships. Genuine friendships. Investing in others. Are you seeking to help someone else grow in their walk with Christ? Or are you self-centered in your life? When you have three hours in an evening with nothing to do, do you go home and waste time on video games? Or do you give someone a call and say, hey, I got some time. You want to get together and finish our book we're reading? How many books are on your shelf that reference Christian, good Christian books? How often do you read your Bible? Invest in others. That's representing the character of Christ and buying in and supporting God's mission. Faith, that's just faithfulness in life. Righteousness, godliness, faith. This is not referring to saving faith, but faithfulness in doing what's right. Consistency in your Christian walk. Do you have a specific time every day where you meet with God? If you don't, you struggle in your personal worship. If you do, you might still struggle, but you're a lot more consistent. Develop a personal plan. Read your Bible. We have reading tracks that are available in our, in our um, resource center over here that will walk you through every area of the Christian life. It would take you years to get through all of them. You just pick up a pamphlet on something that interests you, pick up one of the books, read it with a friend. Don't let that substitute for your Bible reading, but have a plan that you're working through. Are you faithful in your spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible reading and church attendance. I know it's preaching a little bit to the choir to preach about coming to church at church, right? But are you faithful in that? What do you sacrifice to make gathering with God's people a priority? You don't come to church just for church's sake. It's not to check off a box or to make God love you more. It's because you need it. You need the body and the body needs you. Faith, love, this is living in a self-sacrificing love for others. As a man of God, you should be the first to sacrifice rather than requiring the sacrifice of others. You know what a weak man does? He sits around and requires everyone else to sacrifice for him. 
But a godly man is the first to get up, is the first to sacrifice, is the first to love, the first to initiate forgiveness. Do you have have a pattern in your life of loving others by sacrificing for them? Or do you require everyone else to sacrifice around your schedule because you're such a big deal, you have to sit in your lazy boy and require everyone else to bring you stuff? Or are you a man of God? Men of God can have lazy boys. They just don't stay there all day, right? And require everyone else to wait on them hand and foot. Steadfastness, this means you don't quit. See, Guys, I can be a little bit harder on you because you can take it. Okay, ladies, if you're like, man, you are coming across really strong. It's okay. Guys can take it. Sometimes we need a little kick in the pants to motivate ourselves. Steadfastness. Don't quit. Bear up under the weight. Don't walk out. There's an entire generation of people who of, of men specifically who when it gets hard, they just quit. They walk out. When I was working at a summer camp, we'd work with college students all the time. And at the end of week one or sometimes, you know, we'd have 10 weeks of camp and we're sitting here trying to disciple these college students and encourage them to keep going. And it's like Wednesday of week one. And this kid shows up in my office and he's crying. He's like, I just can't do it. Can't do what? I'm so tired. And I'm tired too. That's life, buddy. Well, they're just requiring so much of me. Then get stronger. Maybe you've never been pushed. Guys, don't quit things. End things. Those are very different. Quitting and ending are two very different things. Finish. Be steadfast. Bear under the weight. Why? Because one day your marriage is going to get hard. Guys, listen carefully. One day you're going to wake up and you're not going to want to be married anymore. And it's going to be tough. And if you've set yourself as a pattern for quitting, you might be tempted to quit that too. Bear up under pressure. Persevere through trials and suffering. Get up early and go to bed early. Make it a pattern in your life to be steadfast. But in all of this, I love this last one. Gentleness. Gentleness. What is gentleness? Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is not weakness. This is taking the strength that you possess and channeling it and controlling it to help others. Anybody can get angry. It takes a strong man with spirit-controlled, with a spirit-controlled heart and life to control that anger and to be patient. Anyone can let loose a string of words without thinking. It takes a godly man to control his tongue. For who who can tame the tongue, James says? Girls, listen carefully. Watch a way that a, a guy talks to his mom. If he smarts off to his mom and talks bad about his mom, that's all tall how he'll talk about you one day if you end up marrying him. Because in his heart, he needs to have the spirit controlling his life. It's revealed by his words. Manipulation, abuse, exploitation, violence, anger, these are qualities of weakness. 
that prove that a man can't control himself. And so Paul tells Titus, teach the young men self-control. Teach the young men to say no to themselves. Gentleness is taking the strength that you have and controlling it to preserve the weak. Taking your strength and using it to protect the vulnerable. To build up those who need to be built up. Anybody can be sarcastic and tear down. But it takes a godly man to step in and to bring the right word at the right time to build up those around him. You show me a godly strong man, I'll show you a man who celebrates the strengths of those around him. But a weak person is one who puts down others thinking that somehow it makes them look strong. Friend, these are qualities for the man of God because they're qualities that are evidenced by Jesus. You know, there's only one time in all of Scripture that Jesus refers to the heart attitude that he has. And he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Meek and gentleness are, are, are synonyms here. And we could go through, we don't have time this morning, but we could go through and we could, we could just list every time that Jesus evidenced one of these qualities as a true man living in true faith. Flee from sin, follow after God. Thirdly, fight the fight of faith. Notice that Paul is telling Timothy to be a fighter, but not to be contentious. Those are two very different things. Rather than operating his life as though everybody and everything is out to get him, there's a very specific fight that Timothy is to be involved in. By saying, fight the good fight of faith, and then going through what that looks like. And I want you to understand the way I'm saying this, but it's, Paul is telling Timothy, I want you to be a kind, gentle person who is dangerous to those who don't love God. I want false teachers to be scared to death of you, but your church to love you with their whole heart. That you can control the strength and that you can fight for the faith. This is a fight to preserve sound doctrine, a fight to protect the church. I don't, I'm not naturally a very angry person. I'm optimistic and that gets me in trouble. A lot of times I, uh, I'm a peace faker, meaning I don't like conflict and I'd rather just not have conflict and pretend like everything's okay than actually pursue, pursue peace by confronting the problems. And there have only been a couple times in my ministry at Community in which I have genuinely been very angry. And there were two times when our church was threatened by people who are in our church who were touting false doctrine and disunifying what God was trying to build. And when you see that, friends, that should make you fight the fight of faith. It should make you step in with a righteous anger that motivates you to godliness. That's how you know it's a righteous anger. It motivates to godliness. To stand up for the truth. To preserve sound doctrine. There are false teachers who would love to steal the hearts of the vulnerable ones in our church. 
And God is calling the leadership of our church to fight the good fight of faith. And he's calling every man in this room to be a man of God and to be willing to fight that fight. To protect your heart. To protect your family. To protect this church from those who would seek to work against what God is doing. To to fight against false doctrine. To be on the lookout Sound doctrine could also be referred to as the apostolic doctrine of the core of the Christian faith. It's the gospel. As we said earlier, some things are not worth arguing over and not worth fighting over, but the bottom shelf is. And so it's there that we send centuries on the lookout, right? That we, excuse me, that we are centuries on the lookout and that we preserve the faith of once delivered to the saints. It's interesting that this fight, he says fight the good fight, fight literally it means agonize the good agony because it's hard work. It's this, it's this concept that you are straining and sweating and fighting and working hard to preserve something. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but I do it an imperishable. Listen to this warning from Paul. I exhibit self-control. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's talking about spiritually. That you fight the fight of faith and you bring everything under the discipline of Scripture. And that exemplifies even in the way that you present yourself physically. For laziness affects every part of you, not just spiritual laziness. Part of fighting is to take hold, we see here, keep. Take hold and keep what what he's referencing of taking hold of eternal life is to catch something that's trying to to get away from you, to take hold of your spiritual life and what God is doing in your life because it's trying to get away so quickly. I tried to catch a lizard in the in the uh, in the desert this past week. These massive horned lizards are so cool and they're fast. And I sneaked up behind one like a cat, you know, and I grabbed it behind the head, and that thing gave me more than I was expecting. <laughs> Strong. And after about one second, I let go, and I'm like, fine, you know, if you want it that bad, just run away. And friends, the spiritual disciplines of life are a little bit like that. You have to hold on to your prayer time. You have to hold on to your Bible reading time. Because time is the only asset that you have that once it's spent, you can never get back. You've made a good investment this morning. You can never get Sunday morning, June 18th back. You'll never have it again. And you chose to invest this Sunday morning by fellowshipping with the saints, worshiping the Lord, and listening to the word of God preached. Your time is always getting away from you, and you have to take hold. You have to fight the good fight, agonize, and take hold over how to use that time. And to keep, that means to guard and protect it. Once you have it, put it in a cage and don't let anybody close. The main idea is that we fight to conserve the purity of the gospel. We fight to conserve what God has called us to do. Philippians 3, 12 through 15 references this as well. How do we do this? We keep our life unstained, verse 14. We keep it free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. You fight and you fight and you keep on fighting. 
until God comes back. You do right till the stars fall. Whenever we have a godly man who passes into eternity, I always take a moment personally to recognize the fact that that he finished well. My father-in-law died. My dad is still alive and living for the Lord. My my father-in-law died. It hit me. Like, Like he did it. Like he didn't have money issues in stealing and embezzling. He didn't have moral purity issues. He was faithful to his wife. He was faithful to his family all the way till the end because he didn't quit. He ended. And so you fight and you fight and you never stop fighting. Fight the fight of faith. If you're like me, you get to these qualities and at this point in my study, you feel totally inadequate and you say, God, how could that ever be true of me? And that's why I believe Paul ends the way he does with the right focus. The right focus. And this is where the teachings of Stoicism get it wrong. This is where they get it wrong. Because you listen to these guys and they will say, try harder, do it right, work harder, work weekends, work late in the night, get up early, you can do this, you can be the man, you can be the one. You, if you work hard enough, you can have whatever you want. And that's not where Paul ends. He says, you want these qualities to be in your life? Look at God. Look at God. He draws us into the character of God. He who, the verse 15, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or ever seen, to him be honor and glory and eternal dominion. What he's doing is he's lifting your eyes up and he's saying the way you become like Jesus is you look at Jesus. You look at him. You gaze your eye, you place your eyes on him. You're in the Word, and through being in the Word, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to change you. You don't read your Bible for just the sake of reading your Bible. You read your Bible because you need the truth, and the Holy Spirit uses that truth to change your heart and change your life. When I was in high school, I went snowboarding for the first time. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Couldn't walk the next day. And I was getting this lesson because I was used to skiing. I grew up water skiing. And so it was always point your toes forward, bend your knees, and straighten your elbows. And so I got on the snow and I skied for a while and I picked it up really quickly. And I got to snowboard and my feet are going this way, but my body's going that way. And I didn't know what to do. So I took these lessons and, and, and the, the snowboard instructor looked at me and he said, snowboarding's very easy because you go wherever you look. Because if you look to the left, your weight shifts and you're going to go this way. And if you look to the right, you're going to go this way. So if you want to go somewhere, you just look there. And friends, your sanctification is the same way. One of the reasons why your life reflects sin is because you've been looking at sin. One of the reasons why your life reflects selfishness is because you've been looking at yourself. And you need to lift up your eyes and look to Christ. Just a few chapters earlier, Paul says it this way. He says, or I'm sorry, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scriptures breathed out by God is profitable. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. It's profitable that the man of God may be complete. There's your phrase again, the man of God. Same phrase. And what he's saying here is that it's through scripture that your life is changed to reflect God's qualities 
Much scripture equals looking much like Christ. Little scripture equals looking less like Christ. If you try it on your own, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home. I'm going to work on this, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to be better. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to white knuckle it, right? I'm just going to grab a hold better, and I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to wake up earlier, and I'm going to be a man. That, that's what, that's what the, the world will tell you to do. If you want to, you just got to try harder. And friends, it's not going to work because if you just try harder and you just try to do this the best you can, you're going to end up in one of two camps. You're going to either be proud because you got it, or you're going to be depressed because you can't. Those are the only two results. If you try it on your own, you're either going to be, end up proud because you got it, or you're going to be, end up depressed because I just can't do it, rather than saying, Lord, change me. Give myself to these pursuits. I can't do it on my own. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. I must be in your word and let your Holy Spirit change me so that I, when I look back on my life, I can see God changing me to become more like him and thus less like myself and living for Christ. Give yourself to the pursuit of God and watch these characteristics start to be developed in your life. What does it look like to pursue God? You need to be in the word. You need to be around those who know the word and who know God. And you need to be in prayer. The three spiritual disciplines that you must not give up. For it's through these disciplines that you are exposed to God's word and encouraged to live for him. Dedicate yourself to the consistent practice of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Pray that as you dedicate yourselves to the qualities of a godly man, that God would make them a consistent part of your life. And may God develop in our church men who are focused upward and thus have character developed in their life that reflects Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the way it speaks to us. I know there's much in those that passage that we left unsaid this morning. But to the best of our ability, we pray that you would make those truths part of our life. That they would reflect the person and work of Jesus. That you would help us to be consumed with living for you. That we would be consistent in our spiritual disciplines, not for consistency's sake and not for the discipline's sake, but because what you do through those in our lives that you would help us to lift our, eyes, lift our eyes upward, that we would see the truth of what matters according to Scripture and that we would dedicate our lives to it. That in short, you would make us, the men of Community Baptist Church, men of God. And that the next generation would see these examples and would aspire to be men of God as well. 